Welcome to Searching the Sacred. I'm Jason Steffenhagen. I'm Steph Spencer. And I'm Lisa Adams. We are hosting conversations about scripture for the curious, doubters, and hope seekers. We're inviting people to ask different questions, questions asked by those who have been wounded and hurt, questions asked by those who have deconstructed and are looking for a reconstruction. We're creating space for love, kindness, justice, and curiosity. We will wrestle, we will question, we will dance, we will dream, we will wonder, we will be frustrated, and we will hope. We aren't searching for singular answers or solutions. We are searching the sacred. Well, hello and welcome to the final episode of this season of Searching the Sacred. Jason, Steph, and Lisa here with you. And we are diving into the book of 2 Kings chapter 4 and the story of Elisha and the Shunammite woman. And so Lisa is going to read starting in verse 8. Uh, This is out of the NRSV translation. One day, Elisha was passing through Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to have a meal. So whenever he passed that way, he would stop there for a meal. She said to her husband, look, I am sure that this man who regularly passes our way is a holy man of God. Let us make a small roof chamber with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that he can stay there whenever he comes to us. Okay. Short and sweet. <laughs> Lots to talk about. Perhaps <laughs> uh, already with the pronunciation of Alisha. <laughs> Alisha. Yeah, before we before we pressed record, we were having a conversation about how to say the name and that we've been in rooms where we say Alicia because that makes it really clear when we're talking about Alicia versus Elijah. But then we were looking it up and it was like, oh, it's probably more like Elisha. But then that felt really <laughs> funny to emphasize. Which I went with it because in my entire upbringing, though, it was always Elisha. Yep. Like that was, well, that's how my pastors pronounced it. Mm-hmm. But it was kind of fun to have <laughs> a way to say it. Mm-hmm. So for all of you out there that are wondering where in the world are we in the story, just imagine us saying Elisha. And now you'll know what <laughs> it's pronounced. Alisha. <laughs> so um, I, I think you mentioned this in the beginning. We mentioned the verses, but it's in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 8 through 10 is what we just read. So just to reorient. And um, when we're in the book of First and Second Kings, a lot of time is passing and a lot of geographical, po- geopolitical things are happening. And so that's probably worth just pausing for a moment to say where we are in time and space. And so um, the book of First Kings uh, really uh, is starting to talk about Solomon's reign. So First and Second Samuel has a lot to do with David and Saul. First Kings starts to talk about um, Solomon. And after Solomon, there's a kingdom split in the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, the 10 tribes branch off to become that. Two southern tribes become the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, in the book of first Kings, like midway through like 17, 18 is where we see the prophet Elijah that we were just working on pronunciation come onto the scene. The reason he comes onto the scene is because the Northern kingdoms King, King Ahab, um, God is sending a prophet to talk to Ahab and Jezebel in the Northern kingdom about like, Hey, come back. Um, you're, you're kind of going away. That doesn't seem like a God's way. Um, 
after in in um in First Kings nineteen, Elijah starts to take on Elisha, Elisha, Elisha. I don't know. How, I don't. I'm going to say his name any multiple ways today. As an apprentice, when Second Kings starts, Elijah has died, and Elisha, uh, or he dies early in in Second Kings, um, and Elisha becomes the main prophet. Um, that happens in Second Kings chapter two. In Second Kings chapter one, Ahab has or Jezebel has died. Ahab has died, and so we're in a new thing happening in the Northern Kingdom because it's after Ahab, it's after Jezebel, it's after Elijah, and now we're in Second Kings four. I don't know if any that was like a, a little bit messily told, but <laughs> that's where we are in time and space. Well, I think it's just fair to say that we're in a really messy time period of the people of Israel and what we are reading is a later accounting of this history right so this this history is being written down while the southern tribes of judah and benjamin who are the nation of judah are in captivity in babylon and they're going back and telling the history of what happened and what led to that captivity um in babylon and so you're getting information about both the northern 10 tribes of Israel and the southern two tribes of Judah. And this is coming towards the end of the northern 10 tribes. They're not going to be around much longer before the Assyrians come in and kind of take over and do this thing called syncretism with the 10 northern tribes. And so uh, it's a pretty interesting, complex, geopolitical crazy time period for those northern 10 tribes i think i just made it more muddy <laughs> i was gonna say between the two of you i'm like what the hell's happening in this story <laughs> like i think like, wait so are we saying everybody is still like who's in power then at this when like when we're reading about the shunammite woman and elisha traveling yeah. What kind of place is he traveling through? Or like, why Why is he traveling? And what is it like for wherever she lives? Mm -hmm. So um, let's focus in on the Northern Kingdom um, for a little bit on that. So when we think about Ahab, a lot of people are familiar with the names of Ahab and Jezebel, even outside of the Bible. And they're given a bad rap. And I just want to be more gentle or thoughtful about them a little bit to say Ahab is a good king politically. He is a bad king religiously. <laughs> um, so he, he establishes all sorts of uh, alliances with other nations. He brings in more worship of false gods, but like politically that's actually made the Northern kingdom a place of means, um, which is a part of, what's going on. It's a part of what the prophets start to call out as some of this like oppression that's happening as a part of those means. Um, what it also means though, is like Ahab and Elijah had a pretty not great relationship because like Elijah declared that there was going to be a drought and there was a drought. <laughs> and so Ahab blamed Elijah and like the, so that relationship between King and prophet is pretty tumultuous. And now it's a new king and it's a new prophet, but that's the same landscape where the king's not going to be real pleased with there being a prophet because that prophet's usually speaking against the king. 
while at the same time being sort of reverent towards the prophet, because the prophet seems to speak of something that happens. And in the midst of that chess game of prophet and king, you have regular people living their lives in a place like Shunem, where Alicia is passing through. And so what are those folks doing? How are they responding to all of this geopolitical complications? And I think for our sake too, where do they see God in the midst of that? Do they see God in the midst of that after all of these years of turmoil and fighting and like, where, where is God? <laughs> do they even think there's a God anymore? Because the reality is for most of us, I, I don't know if that it's that... I'm going to make a statement that a historian should correct. So if you're listening, you're a historian, correct it. Many of us aren't impacted day to day by the politics of our time. We are impacted by the politics of our time, but we also just live. And the politics come in once in a while, but they don't, I don't know if I said that right, but do you know what I mean? Like, this is just a family living their life the best they can under tumultuous political circumstances and tumultuous religious circumstances. And so sometimes that's going to hit, sometimes that's not going to hit. Well, I, I, I think the way, the way I would caveat it is that when we read something about so-and-so is lobbying for this thing and they're making money here and they're doing this and they're trying to influence that, all of that like Washington stuff that happens all that lobbying, all that, like, I, I, it doesn't really affect my day to day, but there are obvious, obviously policies and systems that are supported by the government that do have a direct impact on, on things. And when Washington or the government or the state local government doesn't do the thing that we expect it to do or keep operating in the same way, it could have a very profound effect on our day to day life. So if you imagine like right now, if the government shuts down and you're a fisher person up in Alaska and you need to get your permit to go salmon fishing and there's suddenly no government workers, that gets to be really complicated for the salmon harvest and your livelihood. So it has a direct effect on you. Same as if like the king of Israel decides to go to war with the king of Moab and then suddenly you're called and conscripted to go and fight in the battle. Like, yeah, at one point your life was fine and you're just a farmer, but suddenly now you're a soldier and that has a direct effect on you, even though you didn't see it coming. I think I just compared soldiers in Israel to salmon fisher priest people in Alaska. It's okay. Anyone have that on their bingo board? <laughs> I, well, I just keep thinking that it's, I mean, it feels really rare to have a time when you have the religious leaders and the politicians in the same, like they're working together and doing it well. And that, that, still, that still feels true today. Um, and I can't decide whether it's like, Oh, that's a good checks and balance to have like that. You're, you have a, something that's like pushing against each other. Um, and I, it's kind of that question of like, what is the thing like who is best able to determine what is best for all? <laughs> and so there's a way that um, I think in what, I mean, feels a little bit Pollyanna, but like, I would hope that the winner of that is like faith. 
had like that the people who have faith in a God that loves everyone would behave in a way that reflects that. I don't think that that's what happens. Um, and in politics, it still feels like that has so much power that those with power are the ones that end up winning, even though we'd hope that they're making the decisions based on what's best for everyone. And I don't know, maybe you can't ever have everyone as like, is that like you just go with the majority? I don't well, know. I think it gets complicated when you're in a democracy where there's like two or more sides that are vying for power because you're not just in a monarchy where you have the prophet who's in a way representative of the voice of God, the people trying to bring about a checks and balances to the singular leader or the leadership of the nation. Whereas you could essentially have an America or another nation that has prophets on both sides of the political spectrum you know, one's, one's a, Hey, the Lord is with us and everything's going great. And the other one's like, this is like the worst thing possible. And so both can be claiming to be prophetically speaking into the time, even though, you know, is one right and one wrong. It, like it gets really messy really fast. I think Israel is a little bit more simple in the sense of like, there's a King and, and oftentimes it's interesting in Israel because when they're really down, the prophets like, Hey, Trust the Lord. He'll get us through. It's a God of deliverance. It's a God of liberation. Like we will, we will, we will make it. But then when you get like out of that and you start up into the right trajectory and you're suddenly doing good, the prophet's like, okay, hold on. Don't get too excited because this isn't about you, even though now you're out of that. And so I think the prophet is in a way that, that check and balance of like, let's not get too low because we need to trust the Lord, but also let's not get too high because it's really about us. And so um, I, I think the prophet plays a really important role in that. Um, and yeah, it's never going to be perfect. It, you know, mainly because people aren't perfect. I'm not a big fan of Alicia, to be honest, in in the midst of that landscape. Cause like he gets mad at the beginning of second Kings, he gets mad at some kids and like strikes them down. <laughs> So even as we're thinking about checks and balances, that was just... a really polite way of saying it. That was like the kindest way. Strikes them down is not what happens. Like it's one thing to be instantaneously dead. It's another thing for what happens in that story. So okay, so what I mean is, I, I think you need what to we... say what actually happens now. Everyone's like, "What actually happened?" Oh, well, where is it? I want that. <laughs> Let's let's do that. Aren't they mauled by bears? <laughs> yeah, because they call him Baldy, and he gets mad that they call him Baldy, and then he like has a bear attack them. Yeah, sorry, getting mauled and killed by bear is different than just instantly struck dead. Oh, I think though that hasn't happened yet. Maybe that hasn't happened yet. I this is a conversation. Yeah. Dear Lord, <laughs> dear Lord, if people have stuck with us for this entire season, this is going off the rails real quick. Oh, this is what happens when I'm tired, you guys. I just here we we're go. in like we're in a really muddy political season in the story of Israel and Judah. We're <laughs> totally having to deal with messed up kings. We got prophets who are trying to do their best, but also are maybe on edge, um, to say the least. We are in the Old Testament where violence is prevalent, to say the least. Okay, and I would I would say here's the other thing to like hold as we. Like for us, we don't live in a space where there's violence all the time. 
Right. There is. We just aren't exposed to it. Most, I mean, I'm talking about the three of us on here. I don't mm-hmm. know about everybody else's life who's listening. And there's something to be said for a community of people that is really surrounded by violent things happening all the time, whether through nature or war or people or what, like when you're immersed in that kind of thing, it feels like you're always trying to make sense of horrific things happening. And so Mm -hmm. even though at this stage they have a King, so seemingly they have their own land. It still is probably quite precarious of whether they will continue to live that way. Well, and actually the precariousness is very forward because what did just happen in second Kings is because Ahab died, Moab, the the nation of Moab decides to mount a battle against Israel because it seems like they're going to be fragile now because they've lost their king. And so coming right before this story is the story of Moab attacking Israel and, um, and Jehoshaphat from the southern kingdom of Judah joining, actually joining forces with the northern kingdom of Israel. There's a moment of unity that happened as they all pushed back the Moabites and they asked Elisha to prophesy what would happen. And he did speak. So there was like a moment of unity right before this um, that happened. Um, but it was about that vulnerability of kings and kingdoms and attacking and buying for power and people like this Shunammite woman living her life in the midst of that and what she's doing and what, why she's doing it. So maybe let's re let's reconnect to the story as we read it from second Kings four, eight through 10. Cause it fell on a day. So now we don't know how much time has passed since that Moabite battle. We don't know how much time has passed since um, he was just with a widow um, in the beginning of this chapter. And so he's passing through Shunem, and there's this great woman there. Um, well, my, and, my book, my Bible said a uh, wealthy woman. A wealthy woman, a great woman. We will talk <laughs> about that word too. <laughs> so, I mean, even I think maybe as we make sense of all of this convoluted conversation we just had of like, maybe it's helpful to pause and think about all of the responses this woman could have to Alicia going through her town of, um, you know, I'm thinking in all the bits of that term, when I think of political turmoil and myself and all of those things that we just said, I am going to be prone to ignoring anybody who comes through town. That is my response. <laughs> if it's a prophet, if it's a King and I have the option to ignore them, I would, because I'd just be irritated by all of that stuff but what if it's your like okay like if you're if it's (laughs) it's like if you're um this is going to be a rough one but i'm just going to use this as an example like if you are a big billy graham fan and it's in the height of his days of his big tent revivals and he's coming through town and he wants to stay with you and you are a christian and you are like that's I like him a lot. You might be really excited to have him come through. Like and on the other hand, if you're not or you're just not a fan of all kinds of heavy bounds, like you don't want to be proselytized to, you probably don't want him hanging out your house. Mm-hmm. Like how you feel about a prophet probably has a lot to do how you'd feel about them coming. Or like a big military person if you aren't a big fan of military movements you probably don't want them sitting mm-hmm. at your house 
Mm-hmm. Like how risky is it to have a profit stay at your house? <laughs> well, it's risky both ways, right? I mean, it's risky to like maybe receive the profit, but it's also risky to like be the one that maybe like turns the profit away. Cause that's well, so dangerous too. In this case, he's just passing through and she constrains him to come in. Mm-hmm. So there's a way that she's taking the initiative. He's not asking for a place to stay. She's saying, stay here. Don't just pass through. Stay here. Have a meal. Have a meal here. But it starts with a meal, right? Like it starts uh-huh. with her like offering a meal. Well, let's, let's pause there though. It doesn't just start with a meal. It starts with her being a wealthy woman. Mm. I, I, I don't think we can ignore that. That there's maybe some insulation from the turmoil of the time period that well, right we got well we got to talk about what that word is great <laughs> i can't wait <laughs> so your translation says wealthy my translation says great i think some translations say fat so what's the hebrew um lisa what does your translation say my, well, the NRSV says wealthy. Um, and what is this one? This one is Everett notable. Fox. Says a notable. Notable. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to be when I grow up. I want to be notable. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the word is, I'm glad you paused this here, Jason, because we should trip on a word like wealthy and and say like, okay, what is it saying about her? But, but even if, but like, it's also just not the best translation. I don't think of what's she is. So the word is, so he, for her, it's gadola because uh, it's feminine, but the word is gadol, which means great. And it's the greatness that was used in, in Genesis 12 for, Abraham or Brahm at that time, that you will become a great nation. It's the word used back in Genesis one for this, for the sun and the moon, these two great lights that govern. Um, the word gadol is a word that is important. <laughs> it, ha- it carries a uh, distinguished, important, large, um, it's not actually translated as wealth anywhere, which always brings up that translation question of like, they're not, it seems to me that there's a bias in the translators if they're not sure what to do about a woman being referred to by this word, because this word is usually used for more important circumstances than that. Um, Man, that's a layer of, Biblical conversation that need that does not often happen. Like, I mean, we all know that like there could be bias in translation, or translations are tricky. People have to pick and choose what words to use. But it's one thing to to like inaccurately translate a word because we're maybe not comfortable with a person being described this way, even though that's the most honoring way to describe or to translate that word. Because, you know, even the message by Eugene Peterson uh, doesn't say wealthy. It says there was a leading lady of the town. 
And so it's influence, greatness. There's something about her that's bigger than the rest of them. And yeah, but but yeah, just choosing wealth kind of cheapens the whole thing, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's not wrong. I mean, when that's happening in translation, it's not completely wrong. Like that's generally somebody who is of influence and who is prominent is going to be wealthy, oh. but it's choosing like the least characteristic of it to be the main definition of it. Right. It's this way of like, is this about her character or is the fact that she could build a a room on the top of her house? Mm-hmm. Like, did, did they have wealth? Clearly. Probably. You would have had to. You're going to be building the big room. <laughs> like, you, you would have had to have some sort of access to funds. But on the other well, hand, like, is that how we would just, is that is that what this descriptor is for? Is to just point us towards that. So I think there's plenty of wealthy people that are not that influential. They just have a lot of stuff. And they're able to do stuff with it. And it, it can maybe buy a little influence, but they really don't have anything to offer. And they just are there. They, they've, you know, they, they, they played one game really well, but this other social political game, they're not very great at. And then there are some people who are great at playing the game. They're great social, socially. They're, they're just influential. And yeah, money has helped make that even more possible. But that wouldn't be the first thing you would say about them. Mm-hmm. like you would say like oh this person they know how to play the game like or they really know how to like own a room um doesn't hurt that that room has really nice furniture and high ceilings and a nice wine bar but they own the room it, this is actually very uh when we carry this forward into new testament conversations there's been this scholarship recently about mary magdalene about how we define her name that is that is the same conversation because Mary Magdalene they what they have said is that it's Mary from Magdala that's what people have like that's why she's called Mary Magdalene but Magdala comes from this same word Magdala it's it's tower which comes from the word great the same word we're talking about here of Gadol that Mary so is it where she's from or is it her descriptor is it's like saying Peter the rock Mary the great Mary the tower <laughs> Peter the rock is this meant to be a descriptor that we've made into a place because we're not sure what to do with it when it's used about a woman <laughs> um and can we allow this woman to be described with this word Gadol and wonder what kind of influence did she have what kind of power did she have what kind of great is she <laughs> Seems like she has some means and some wealth. How is she using that? What kind of influence does she have? What kind of leadership does she have? Let's keep that word big and broad and see as we dig into the story, how it might describe who she is. So why would she want the prophets to come into her house? So the prophets just passing through Alicia, Alicia, is is just making his way through. She says, come in. Come eat some bread here. And so then it started to happen as often as he passed by that he started to eat bread at her house. Why I do mean, that? It feels like it's a little bit like aggressive hospitality. <laughs> like I can't like because they're a little bit like, did he need a meal? Because if he needed a meal, then that was really great. <laughs> but I mean, as someone who's grown up in a family of food pushers i don't like i'm trying to figure out like how like is this like a like you need to eat come sit down 
or is it like actually he's kind of weary and anybody would be thankful like if you're traveling like that you'd just be thankful to have a house to stop in and eat a meal don't get me wrong i anytime my grandma wanted me to come have a meal i would but <laughs> there's also a little bit of pushing <laughs> totally it makes me wonder that makes me think about like the value of aggressive hospitality or even like biblically when we're thinking about hospitality it's a really important biblical concept that's coming up i mean it's like back in genesis it is um, a key moment when abraham shows hospitality to the three visitors and invites them to stay but he invites them to stay after they show up at his door. And so there's a way she, if we keep that word gadol, there's a way that that story shows Abraham's greatness that he has developed, that he decides to be hospitable to these visitors. But now this woman being described as gadol, she takes it further. She has this aggressive hospitality of inviting someone in who didn't ask for anything. She says, come in, like she goes out versus just opening to the invitation. Well, and I, I think the similarities of these stories, we are supposed to take note of, right? Because what's the result of Abraham's hospitality, the divine figure among them, or who, however we want to describe this, promises that Sarah's going to have a child, right? At the end of it, like this time next year, you will have a child. And then here at the end of this story, or midway through this story, the Shunammite woman who is childless also is going to be told you will have a child by the by this time next year or within this next season. And so I don't think we're supposed to miss the fact that there's something similar or interesting happening, that these stories are in conversation with each other. It reminds me of... Um... When I then see what she's doing and think about her being described as Gadol, is that like here we were in this tumultuous political time period that we spent too much time talking about, where it's really easy or or tempting to look for where God is amongst the people of power. Like, oh, there Ahab's not Ahab's not a man of God, so God must be absent in the northern kingdom. But to say, oh, but here's this little town of Shunem. And God must have been here all along because this woman is showing all of these characteristics of Abraham, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. she wasn't great in the sense of political power. She's great in some other way where like just some of those conversations of like looking for God on the margins. And, and I don't like the word margins to describe her because she is a person of influence in her own town at least, but like, yeah, the kings aren't following God, but that doesn't mean God's not somewhere in the story. Well, and she seems to be looking for it on the margins because she doesn't know that Ali Shah is a prophet, like the prophet, the one that's going to be written about years later and remembered, you know, for 4,000 years, you know, up until now, like, or whatever it's been like, she doesn't know that. I mean, she, she doesn't even know what God this holy person is following like i mean i mean she says look i'm sure that this man who regularly passes our way is a holy man of god like she's got a suspicion but like it's not like she's like oh my goodness there here comes ali shah like we got to find a way to befriend this one because if 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 we're going to be remembered at all this is the one that we want to be friends with right i mean 
there's a part of me that's like, man, I wonder if this was like her posture towards like people and not just towards people that she thinks are in power. Well, it seems like she has a different kind of knowing. So that verse nine, as you pointed out, she says to her husband, okay, I know that this is a holy man of God who keeps going through. So she knows something, but doesn't say how she knows it or how much she knows. It's, it, there seems to be some different, but like, I know this is a holy man of God. And then her language in verse 10 is really um, interesting to ponder because what she says is it gets very specific, right? So, so it would have been easy to just write about, like she says to her husband, let's make this man a room so he can stay with us. But she's, it's like, let us make a little chamber on the wall. Let us make, put a bed and a table and a stool and a candlestick. Like that's very weird to give all those details about the room. So that should be the kind of verse that makes us go, why? That's weird. (laughs) Why is it describing this room that she wants to make in such detail? What is it about the, what is it about that, that she's describing? And so, um, she talks about putting two things that are really key in that chamber, a sulhan uh, or shulhan, which is a table, but it is a table that is the king's table or more specifically, it is the, it is the word for the table that is put inside of the tabernacle. It is the priest table. It is the table of shittim wood that, that, goes inside the tabernacle. It's a very specific table. She says, let's put that table in the chamber and let's put, my translation says, put a candle on it. Um, But many people will recognize the word she says is menorah, which is lampstand, which is the table that, or the candles that go in the tabernacle or the temple. So she's saying, let's make a room for this holy man that has the table that has a table like what you would see in the temple and a ta- and a candlestick menorah lampstand like you would see in the temple and let's have him come and stay in that room at our house that's quite the room well or perhaps the shunammite woman is just ahead of most of us where she recognizes that god's in the place and so you just build a room so that the prophet knows that god's in the place too Okay, say that again. Well, there's, if she's building like a tabernacle, which is where God resides, if she's putting a space where that is what happens, then she's clearly recognizing that there's something significant about her home, about who she is, about who her family is, where that God resides here. And Mm. maybe it's less about like caring for Elisha and his travels. Maybe it's more about like helping him recognize that God is in the midst Mm. here as well. That's a beautiful insight because, yeah, the prophet doesn't make the space holy. The space is holy and the prophet shows up to it. Mm-hmm. Oof. Uh, well, and I love how you just said that because that's really a question being raised in this little section of scripture is what is it that makes a place holy? Because the in the northern kingdom, they don't have the temple anymore. The temple's in the southern kingdom. The temple is was made a permanent place, and it's in Jerusalem. So what happens to the faith of the people of the northern kingdom when they no longer have access to the temple? Do we assume that God isn't there because the temple's not there? Do the people assume that God isn't there because the temple's not there? 
Or are there people like this Shunammite woman saying, we might not have the temple, but we still have God and we can make this place holy. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> that's like, that's like some New Testament stuff. You know, I mean, I'm not trying to like sound all weird about it, but like, you know, when we're writing about the circumcision of the heart and no longer circumcision of the body, or we're talking about the, you know, that you are the temple of the Holy spirit, right? Whether it's Paul writing to like the community saying y'all are the temple of the Holy spirit or Paul writing to the person and saying you specifically individually are the temple of the Holy spirit. There's this embodiment of this is where God resides is with us. And I feel like we're getting a foreshadowing of that in the Shunammite woman. And it's like blowing my mind that it's literally just translated. And they put a table and a chair and a bed and a lamp in the room. And we just, how are we supposed to pick this up if we're a normal non-Hebrew speaking person reading the Bible, like reading the Hebrew scriptures? Like I would have never known this, like never known this if it weren't for this moment. Like I would have no concept that they were placing a table that's essentially meant to be in the tabernacle of the temple and a menorah, a lampstand, a sacred lampstand in that space, if it weren't for knowing Hebrew, because- Oh, by the way, the chair is also a kisei, which is a um, (laughs) seat of honor or a throne um, that also is a a place of honor for people to sit in. Hey everyone, this is Jason. We're about the halfway point of this episode. And if you are not a patron of this podcast, I want to invite you to join Patreon and type searching the sacred. And for a dollar a month or more, you can become a patron of this podcast and get access to the afterthoughts. The afterthoughts are Steph, Lisa, and myself providing a little afterthought after the episode. And we want to invite you to share your afterthought as well in the comments. It'd be a great place where we can hear from one another as we continue to wrestle and journey with these wonderful stories that we read in scripture. Now, let me ask the question that I think everybody else is asking is because, because here's, here's the, here's the question. Are there other words that could have been used for table, chair, and lamp that the author or the writer could have used because, or is the table, the chair, and the lamp that we see being used in like the creation of the tabernacle or the temple also what grandma and grandpa have at their house? Like it's used commonly and it's used in a way, in a, in a holy setting. Like, and so in a way, Steph, you're picking and choosing how you want to interpret it, which is good midrash and it's, it's great to do that. Or are you actually interpreting this more accurately to the Hebrew because the author intended you to. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a fair question that we should always be asking. <laughs> um, one piece is to realize I'm not, I don't know that there is another word for table. The issue is there's just not tables besides like every time it's the every time it's used if i start saying about where is this word table used right 
I'll, I'll list its uses. Um, so this word is, um, sorry, I'm being slow here. So Shulhan, first time it's used, thou shalt make a table of shit and wood, two cubits in length. And uh, so it's describing Exodus 25, describing the, the tabernacle. Exodus 25, 27 is talking about the rings for the places to bear on the table. So Exodus 25, it's used over and over again. Exodus 26, set it on the table. Exodus 30, set that on the table. Exodus 31, all of this is describing the tabernacle. Um, so the only uses of it in Exodus are describing the table that's in the tabernacle. Then it's used in Leviticus and Numbers to describe the table that's in the tabernacle. Um, and then there is, uh, later on, it starts to be used to describe, like in 2 Samuel, it's talking about the king's table. Um but it's regular people don't have tables is the issue. <laughs> Whatever this word isn't you like we think of a table over and over again in our home. This is a word that is used, has only been used about the table that is in the tabernacle. Oh. And and then some every once in a while for a table the king has, but nobody nobody's talking about having someone over to their table to eat. Okay, so let me just put it in, in my own words then. Essentially, this could be the word for a common table or for any old table, but it's only been used to describe tables in the temple, the tabernacle, or with the king. Therefore, what's the point of telling us if it isn't to show that this table is of significance? Because otherwise, you just would have said they prepared a room for him. And then we would have assumed preparing a room includes a bed, maybe a table, maybe a lamp. Right. But because you're actually telling us, there must be something significant about those things being in there. And so we can maybe assume or we can draw a conclusion that there's something uniquely special about the way this Shunammite woman is setting up the room for the prophet of God. Mm -hmm. That makes sense to me. Yes. And especially when we then pair it with the word for the word menorah. Right. Because that because, is unique, right? Right. Because there we also, we could have choose the word or, which is the word for light. Um, we could have chosen the word. Um, uh, there's another word for lamp. I'm just not thinking of it at the moment. Um, you don't have the entire Hebrew vocabulary memorized. No. I'm using my tools just so people know I am using like some Google search. Lapid isn't it word for there's a there's a a, a lamp um that's used in, in Genesis Lapid, but I was looking for the one doesn't matter. There are other words for lamp, there are other words for light. Menorah is the word for the candlestick that is in the tabernacle. So it's partly also the combination of those yeah, two. Yeah, the context is helping us, yeah that helps us say like, this really should be thought of as something more, which really like the me seeing this just to normalize this too, really came from a rabbi. Like I, I didn't look, I didn't look at this passage myself and catch it, but a rabbi caught it. A rabbi brought it forward to us because they were a rabbi is seeing the world differently than the Christian lens that I bring to the text. Hmm. It helps to know Hebrew. That is helpful. Like, that's true. Under Like, reading it in its original language is helpful for... That would be helpful for a lot of people. We have literal translations of the Bible of the Hebrew that did not have a Jewish person who's... 
There's a yeah, lot. I of would actually in our Let's be clear about the one that translates it wealthy. Um, let's let's be a little pointed towards the translators right now. Wealthy was in the New International Version. The New International Version of the Bible is a Christian translation of the Old and New Testament where zero Jewish Hebrew scholars were invited to contribute to the Hebrew translations of the Old Testament. As Christians, it is worth thinking about that. If you are a Christian, you are listening to say, why do Christians think they have interpretation of the Hebrew that stands alone from generations of cultural and religious understanding of a central text and document? And so that often our Bibles, very much our Christian Bibles within an Old and New Testament, as compared to a Bible that has Hebrew scriptures and a New Testament or a Tanakh. And it like there's there has been a lack of honoring of the Jewish tradition inside of the Christian tradition that is worth knowing with our translations because it affects what we see, it affects how we translate, it affects there's a bias generally in the Christian Bible for how and actually scholars are talking about this more, even with um I'll slight Pandora's box and tangent. This will be a this will be a <laughs> tangents, but um Isaiah chapter seven talks about a virgin giving birth in our Christian Bibles. Most Jewish scriptures do not translate the word as virgin because there's a Christian bias to translating the word virgin there because of the way it goes together with the book of Luke that is informing how Isaiah is being translated. It's not the most common translation of that word. Mm. Yeah. Um, just to point to another example that we're, I'm going to drop that, but we're not going to talk about it. Cause <laughs> we're well, I, I think it gets, I mean, you're, you're giving us an example and you're giving us context for why this passage can be overlooked and it can just be breezed through because there is actually a dynamic story that's told after this about this, with this woman having a son, this son seemingly dying, and then it being rose from the dead. I mean, there, there's like a whole cool story found in this, but it's all prefaced by this very simple act of the Shunammite woman seeing Ali Shah coming and inviting, going out to him, inviting him in, and then preparing this room and uniquely preparing this room in a way that says to the prophet, God resides here. This is a holy place that is choosing to honor the tradition, choosing to honor the Lord. And we want you to be here. We want you to, to, to find rest here, to, to find space and food and, and to be refreshed in this place. And, and that's actually incredibly powerful and really beautiful. And I think that there's so many circumstances in our lives today where with all the political upheaval and the polarization and all the things that we talk about constantly, um, that there's a big question of, okay, if the church and the institutions aren't working the way they should, if they tend to do more harm than good at, in, in a lot of ways, what does it mean for our house? What does it mean for our community? What does it mean for this friend group to actually be a place where the Lord resides? What would that really look like? Who would we make room for? Who would we want? How would we prepare this place for people to find rest in it? And I think that's an incredibly powerful way of of navigating this passage. Mm -hmm. I also wonder, though, about like the opposite 
um, like the, cause I feel like there's something happening in the way that she's like, like subversively teaching the prophet. Mm, like there's this more. way. Well, I think so like further on in the story. And I think I've had, I think I've heard some sloppy preaching. Um, no. I, feel like, I feel like it's been taught to me that like somehow like there's like this little bit of ulterior motive for her of like, she's, you know, they don't have any kids. Like she's, desperate for a child like there's this way that they set her up in this like because eventually what happens is that she becomes pregnant after this which has this whole like we got into this a little bit in the last episode there's a little bit this painful history in the, in the trajectory of the bible that points towards women having children and wombs closing and all kinds of things but in this particular story what i find so interesting is that she's not asking she never asks for it. Elisha as- assumes it with this conversation with his servant. There, there's this an assumption that like, well, that's what she can have. So that like, there's a, maybe it's best to read this because we didn't read this part of it. Um, so Elisha says to his servant, Gehazi, call the Shunammite woman. When he called her, he stood before, she stood before him. He said to her, say to her, since you've taken all this trouble for us, what may be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? And she answered, I live among my own people. And then they go out to like figure out what they want to give her. And I just think it's fascinating that like her response is, I live among my own people. Especially since we just talked about her like building a space that says like God is here too. Like there's this something that like she's so settled where she is. She's not actually asking for anything outside of what she already has and like there becomes like this whole assumption that takes her life on a totally different trajectory but if you pause right at the like i live among my own people i don't like it just feels like she's trying to teach him something like there's just something she's trying to like give him for whatever is coming from it's like prepping this prophet Mm -hmm. like she's she's teaching him Well, that makes me think about like why, as we're talking about bias in translation, bias in reading, like that we do tend to be more familiar with the part of the story where her son's raised from the dead because we like, we like resurrection stories. And are we reading, are we really reading the fullness of the character that we see here when we don't go back and read? Because there's a way that if it's just about the resurrection story of our son, we just completely miss who this was. There's a way that creates this clean narrative of, well, clean of like, oh, it's all about God. It's all about how God does miraculous things for us when we're in need. It's like, well, kind of, except the story started with her doing an act. And even when her son dies, she like this whole interaction that happens after this, she goes out and she gets Alicia and she makes him come raise her son from the dead. (laughs) She is very opposite of passive in this story. And why do we skip that part? Mm. And what is there that she can show us through how she's living and through that sort of makes it reminds me again, it reminds me of Jesus. Um, like the parable of the persistent widow, like she's got this persistence that is really holy and good and great. It's gadol, <laughs> and and has she been seen? Has that persistence been seen as great? Um, 
And as has she been given the honor that she deserves in history, or has it just been about Alicia and her son? And has she become a bit player when actually she was always central? Mm. I think I'm pausing just to kind of take all that in. Um, and, and, you know, we've, we've been kind of harsh maybe, or honest about translation. And I think not to like harp on it all the more, but like the heading in my Bible says, Ali Shah raises the, you know, the Shunammite woman's son. Um, it doesn't even say woman. It just says Ali Shah raises the Shunammite son. Um, and, and that is what happens in the story. But that that isn't the only thing that happens, and it's almost a a result of something, not the main thing. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how many times in life we want the result of something without doing anything to prepare for it, mm-hmm. or how we give credit to the we give credit where maybe it's not due. You know, not that Ali Shah is not doing something beautiful or, you know, following through on a promise or however we want to look at it. Like the prophet of the Lord should be honored for what the prophet can do. But like this Shunammite woman is the main character of this story in this moment, right? Maybe not in all of Second Kings, but like for this chapter, I mean, this is the person doing the thing mm-hmm. and we miss it so, so quickly. Yeah, I mean, I I think it makes me think of how we pray. Or like at 40 Orchards, we use the word co-create a lot. Like, yes, God is doing something and we are co-creating with God our lives and the good. It is not just God. And it's also not just us. And how often we ask for things, but like, she's the one who invites him in to eat. She's the one who builds a house. She's the one who then bears the child that he gives her without her asking for it. (laughs) And she says like, don't make me false promises. Like, don't give me this child. If you're like, do you really mean this? Like you can tell she's, she like has some feelings about it that she's not afraid to express. And then when the child um, dies, she um, in verse 18, um, she lays him on the bed, shuts the door and goes out to get Alicia and like, won't stop until she gets him. It's not like he has this divine premonition that she, he should go to the child. She goes and gets him. She brings him back. I don't know. It's just so, it reminds me of the number of times that I've been told to, or like the sermons that say, wait on God. She doesn't wait for anything. And that sometimes it's not wait on God. Sometimes it's go get God or go mm. get the man of God, right? Like sometimes it's like, mm-hmm. no, you got, you can do some stuff here and God wants you to do some stuff here. And it still makes me think about how, what is that actually teaching Elisha in his, in the journey mm-hmm. of him being a prophet? What was that moment to like, do this little like this this miracle help be a part of this miracle happening and then like walk away and like okay everything's fixed this is perfect 
mm-hmm. and then have this moment of like it's not mm-hmm. well because but like what she says to him when she sees him in verse 28 is did i did i desire a son of my lord did i not say don't deceive me like she calls him out she's like you gave me something i didn't ask for and i told you not to deceive me and now that thing that i didn't dare ask for but i really did want has been taken from me like i'm not going to let you get away with that prophet of god <laughs> right well and then he's like well go ahead you can fix it i'm going to give you the tools and she's like absolutely not you're going to go fix this <laughs> <laughs> i'm not taking your staff you're going to do this. <laughs> yeah, right. Because verse 29, he's like, oh, just take my staff and lay it on the face of the child. And then it calls her, finally calls her something other than a Shunammite woman. It calls her the mother of the child. As the Lord lives, the, like that personal name of God, living presence, as the Lord lives and as my soul lives, I will not leave thee. <laughs> and then he arose and followed her. <laughs> And then it does end up being this very intimate moment between Alicia and the um, the child, but like she does have to demand it. And what does that say about her? What is that? What is Alicia learning here about what his role as a prophet? I love that idea that she's teaching him something. Man, I like this story so much. I love the agency that she has, and 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 to be honest, I, I whether it was a happy accident or whether it was intentional, I love that the writers like give us the fullness of this story and they don't take away her agency. They don't, they don't tell the story from like the perspective purely of the prophet who, I mean, for all intents and purposes, they could have just written this story and made Ali Shah even more of the hero of this story than he already is. But instead this is really told through the lens of the Shunammite woman who doesn't even get a name throughout the entire story, which is just tragic. But there's there's so much agency there's so much power there's so much influence and i say all those things as compliments not as negative and i man i I think there's it's so frequent where people in leadership or like that have influence and power can miss the fact that there's there's others doing good work and Mm -hmm. they think that they're doing all the work and in this story, like, yes, Ali Shah is going to do this amazing thing, but it's be- it's only because of the persistence of this woman, like only because of it. And so I just love that we can, we can point to her and say like, okay, what's it? We can't all be Ali Shah's, but like, what does it mean for us to be a Shunammite woman? Mm-hmm. Which that could point to an, a reason. There's there's lots of reasons we might not have her name. Maybe we wrestle with that a little bit. Like one of them could just be that the name's lost to history. And there's also a way that from what you're saying that sometimes people who are not unnamed in, in scripture allow us a different entry point to seeing ourselves in their shoes. Mm. To say like, we're not all going to be a prophet, but can we be like her? Can we be like this Shunammite woman? Shunam means double resting place. <laughs> Um, so her name, the when she's just referred to as a Shunammite woman, is like this this name carrying a double resting place. How can we be a resting place for for God? How can we be a resting place for others? How can we have agency like her? Like, is there an invitation to see ourselves in her? Lisa, how do you see it that she's not given a name? Um, 
in some ways it's because it's the Shunammite woman it, that's helpful. It, at least names that it's, I mean, although the heading was just the Shunammite son, <laughs> which that's the disservice. Um, but she is known as the Shunammite woman, which is, I think, in some ways in a book that is heavy on patriarchy, that's helpful. At least we can identify her. Yeah. Um, I, I, it makes me think about, um, it's this interesting thing that happens for Christians in churches and with pastors. Cause there's like an elevated thing that like pastors kind of get, I don't know if it's a pedestal, I don't pulpit, whatever thing you want to call it. There's almost like this protective box around a challenge of like, I disagree with how you interpreted this text or I see something different, or it's almost as if we assume that every, like the pastor is going to get it all right. And we just take it for their word. And I think that does a disservice both to ourselves and to the pastors that are leading churches. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I am not foolish enough to think that every pastor is open to this. Um, but I think there are some that are open to the conversation and we welcome a conversation of difference, like ways of seeing things different, of wondering, of um, questioning, not in a way of challenge, but in a way of like, what else can be done? Because what the Shunammite woman isn't afraid of is calling out this key prophet. Like she doesn't have a problem saying the truth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I actually think that could be actually good for some of our pastors because I like there's just a way that there's the checks and balances are a little funky sometimes. Like there's a, I don't know. And so, and so like, this is the thing that gives me hope for um, like, you can see how the story and the trajectories kind of change when somebody is brave enough to mm-hmm. speak out, to say something. And so I don't know. I just think that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, I'm just thinking about like, what does it look like to have, what would it be like to be in a community of people who would be willing to like, you've got somebody kicking it off, but like the conversation doesn't end there. That's not the end of the, that's not the end of the sermon. And it's not just about like for you to go out and proselytize other people. It really is to like continue to wrestle. Like, what do you see in it for yourself? How does this actually translate to you? What's in it for you? Right. I don't know. Jason, do you have a lot, do you have people that will like challenge you? Yes. <laughs> I, how you feel There's, about them? <laughs> uh, I, to, to, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm of a mixed mind. You know, sometimes the moment after you're done giving a sermon is one of the more vulnerable times because you, you prepare something, you stand in front of a whole group of people and you share it as authentically and as meaningfully as you can. And I am, I am of the perspective that I hope that my words are a continuation of a conversation that's already going on and that will live on beyond me. And that my understanding of what I'm preaching on is just the best that I can do at this moment in time, but that I'm open to being wrong and for things to change in the future. If there's new insight or new stories or experiences that are brought to that interpretation or idea. So I am very open to that. I think it's it's a challenge when it happens immediately after being done. And it's meant to be like, you're wrong about this and here's why. Because it's not that I have to be right. 
it's that I was trying to to bring a nuance to the conversation and help with the gray. And now you're just telling me that you're right and I'm wrong. And it's like, well, okay, maybe, but can we say it a little bit more with gray? <laughs> like, can we, can we not just throw out everything that I just did yeah. for the last, you know, week or you know, month <laughs> of my life, you know, like, so yeah. I, I think sometimes like it's the posture of the person. Um, I love when someone walks up to me and says, I really appreciate what you said, but the way I read it is this. I love that. I'm like, oh, that's brilliant. I wish I would have thought of that beforehand. I'll preach it differently next time because of that insight. Thank you. But like, but when it when it's held at like, hey, let's enter into the gray space together, I love it. But when it's like, you're wrong, I'm right, that's when I'm a little bit like, I mean, okay, like, thank you, I guess. Um wait a week, you know, like <laughs> I don't know. So I guess that's my Yeah. But I, I actually really love having people that are willing to push back. Um, I think it actually, it, it makes the environment that I'm in more dynamic um, and a more of a learning environment and a growing environment and not a static environment where I don't get, I just have to be perfect all the time. Like that's too much pressure on a person. Well, I'm hearing that as, so I was looking at, um, Tikva Freimerkensky, who I refer to a lot, she wrote a book called Reading the Women of the Bible that's probably come up in this podcast. I will unashamedly point people to that book all day long. It's really good. But she names that maybe the part of this Shunammite woman being called the Shunammite woman is noting that she wasn't called someone's husband, someone's wife. She's very connected to her place and that she's, and even as she names, like, I don't need anything. I'm, I'm among my own people that there's a very, there's a connection to people versus husband that is key to her identity. And when I hear what you're saying, Jason, what I hear is the difference between making space because it's actual hospitality or because we need something from someone else. So there's a way that when we call out leaders, sometimes it's because we're actually doing that from a place of need or fear or power ourselves versus that confidence of, I know who I am. I know who my people are. I want to open up in hospitality. That opening is a very different kind of opening and pushing than like I'm vying for power or I'm, I'm needing you to be wrong so that I can feel better about being right. And her, the way that she is pushing and opening is really from that confident place that doesn't need something in return that that is doing this out of who she is, which I think is what you're like, that's when we do leave different space for the gray while also pushing ourselves is like mm -hmm. when we're coming from that posture of, I know who I am. I know who my people are. I know what I have to offer. Yeah. And let's share with each other. Right. Which another interpretation then that I, on this, um, uh, this article is from, um, I'm looking for if I can find the author of it. Um, Rabbi Gilla Coleman Ruskin. She names that what she, that what this Shunammite woman is teaching Elisha or Elisha is to not be detached. She is pulling in that, that this prophet, that he's living this detached life. He's just roaming with Gehazi. He's not connecting with the people he's supposed to be a prophet to. 
and that she is making him build connections with the people mm. and that that is the legacy that she is leaving and the way she is teaching is you can't be a leader on a pedestal distant from the people you're supposed to be leading. Mm. I'm going to make you come into my house so that you know some people here and operate from that place, Alicia, which is a little, that that's also like a little different than like calling out a particular word that's wrong or whatever to say like, okay, you have to be connected to the people that you claim to be prophesying mm-hmm. for. So that you don't kill the children and with the bear. So that you don't <laughs> kill children with the bear. <laughs> Full circle people. That's, that's how it, we do a podcast. That's, what it is. <laughs> that's how we do a podcast. Full circle. <laughs> That wasn't okay, Alicia. I'm going to help you be a better prophet than that. You can't do that. You can't do that. Unbelievable. That was so beautiful. <laughs> Should we title this episode, Don't Kill Children with, with a Bear? Probably not, but we'll think about it. <laughs> so everybody, this has been uh, the close of this season of Searching the Sacred. We're glad that you've been along for the ride. We're excited to be back during Advent. So keep your feed open and be on the lookout for the next episode. Thanks for joining us for Searching the Sacred. This has been a 40 Orchards podcast. At 40 Orchards, our mission is to create circles for all people to wrestle through biblical text so that together we can expand each other's experience of what is sacred, whole, and good. We search through the lens of sacred possibility, assuming there is more to be discovered, questioned, and applied as we listen for how God is still speaking. You can learn more about 40 Orchards and sign up for a study by going to 40, that's 40orchards.org. Our opening music is by Less FM. Our closing music is by NCR Music Vibes. Additional music is by 3Music. Any references to books or other sources can be found in the show notes of this episode. Thank you for searching the sacred.